0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Um, We are going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today um, and in 27. It's going to be a rather long passage. We're going to take quite a bit of time. So we're not going to start with a scripture reading. We'll we'll read as we go through it. Um, Today, what we're looking at in Matthew is is a passage where Jesus meets people in really really profound ways. We are coming up on uh, the last chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And throughout the story, we've seen Jesus interacting and engaging in a really broken world, bringing the redemptive power and the healing power of God's love into the world, and the way he lived, and the way he served, and the way he loved, and then most profoundly and supremely in what we're seeing in these kind of next couple of chapters in the way he laid down his life for the sins of the world to bring reconciliation and redemption and the hope of resurrection into the world. And so uh, this... this morning we're going to go through a really long passage, and so it's going to be a little different. We're going to kind of take our time and look through four different vignettes of sorts, four different kind of um, images that God gives, that Jesus gives through Matthew, and portraits of how people were turning away from Jesus, and we'll see continually the heart of Jesus for people as we turn away from him. One of the things that I think is profound when we think about Christianity is how easily it is, how easy it is for us to begin to think of Christianity as a place where we're supposed to pretend that we have it together. We're supposed to pretend that we're kind of morally superior or intellectually superior or superior in our knowledge or superior in whatever it might be. And, and because of that, you know, God loves us. And it's the opposite of what Christianity is. It's the opposite. Christianity is fundamentally, to trust in Jesus, is to acknowledge that we need him. We need his forgiveness for our sin. We need his mercy. We need his grace for our weakness. We need his healing. We need his salvation. We need his nearness. We need his power to live and even to breathe and to, and to have our being. We need him. And this passage brings us into this really profound and, and shocking profile of, of the kind of ways that rebellion works itself into our life. It's a really heavy text where you see rebellion and sin working itself into the hearts and lives of people in profound ways. And Matthew gives us these stories in part to be a mirror through which we begin to see ourselves reflected. We see the nature of our own rebellion, the nature of our own sin, the nature of the ways that we push away from Jesus, his reign, his goodness, his presence, and his love to try to forge out for ourselves a life apart from him. And all the while, you see a picture of Jesus there steadily, faithfully, lovingly, humbly, powerfully offering his life in self-giving love. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read the first two verses uh, of this section. That's Matthew 26, 57 and 58. I'll then say this is the word of the Lord, and then we'll kind of walk through the four stories and unpack them as we go, as we make our way through. So if you will, open up your Bible again. We're in Matthew chapter 26. We'll start in verse 57. It says this. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter, who was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, oh, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. This is the word of the Lord. Right, I want you to kind of position you uh, to where we're at in the story. Uh, we are, it is the middle of the night. On a Thursday night, the Thursday before Jesus will be crucified. He'll be crucified. By the next evening, Jesus will have died on the cross. It's going to be happening throughout the afternoon on Friday. So we're in the middle of the night Thursday. This one night has already had a lot of profound moments in it. Where we were before even we celebrated as a church Palm Sunday several weeks ago, we talked about the Passover meal, Jesus' last supper with his disciples. That was on this Thursday night. The sun had set. Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. It's where he said to his disciples, one of you will betray me, the one who's dipped his hand in the dish with me, and he gives it to Judas. Judas is there with them. They celebrate the Passover meal. After the Passover meal, they leave the meal and they go to the garden of Gethsemane and Judas departs somewhere in that time. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus predicts Peter's betrayal. Peter says, no way. If everybody else turns away from you, I won't. Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times this very night. Peter says, no way. In that scene, Jesus prays to the Father, surrendering his will to the Father, surrendering his desires to the Father, kind of offering his life, even his honest desires, but saying, ultimately, not my will, but thy will be done. His disciples keep falling asleep. This is all that night. That's happening in the middle of the night on Thursday night. On Thursday night, Judas arrives with the temple guard or the guard that was kind of commissioned by the high priest to guard the temple. The temple guard comes, a bunch of religious leaders come with Judas. Judas had paid or had been paid 30 pieces of silver to disclose the location where Jesus would be with his disciples. They come to arrest him. Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear. Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom is going to come. Put the sword away. I could I could spare myself right now. I could ask the Father. He would send legions of angels to rescue me. But this is what I'm doing. I'm here to lay down my life actively as an offering of self-giving love, a sacrificial atonement to redeem humanity from its sin, to reconcile people to God. And so Jesus walks into this moment willingly, and then we pick up in verse 57. So we are in the middle of the night. And now Jesus has been escorted to the home of the high priest. The high priest's name is Caiaphas. There's one high priest who is also kind of approved of by the Roman governor, but in charge of the kind of temple operations and a leader and kind of a leader of a council of Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. They're going to show up here in a moment. And so that's what's happening. We're in the home of the high priest. A bunch of chief priests and elders are gathered together. Members of this council have gathered together. And they're kind of going to begin to find a way to put an end to Jesus. Meanwhile, Peter's also around. And you notice Matthew paints a really kind of vivid picture. Peter's nearby. He's in the courtyard, not in the house. And he's just watching to see where this all goes. To see the end. To see where it heads. And that's where we're at. And we pull up to verse 60 in that same night. And we'll unpack really the first scene. And the first scene you could say is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. So we'll read from verse 59 uh, all the way to 68. It says this, Now the chief priests and the whole council, the, the word behind the whole council is the Sanhedrin. That's this council of Jewish leaders. There will be 71 members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Jewish leaders that were in charge of kind of creating, really kind of processing the scriptures together, making judgments together about the scriptures, about their application to scenarios that were working itself out within the community. So the whole council, and they were seeking, now listen to what it says, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Now pay attention to the grammar. They have a predetermined conviction and sentence. And they're just finding a way to substantiate it with with a crime and a witness. So they already know what they wanna do. They want to convict him of a crime, with which they could sentence him to death. That's the goal. And they're seeking, actively looking for, kind of trying to gather up or drum up some sort of testimony that could stand with which they could convict Jesus of death. Something you have to understand about this scene and its relationship to what will happen before Pilate. In a few moments we'll cover it. And it'll be that next morning that Jesus stands before Pilate. The The leaders need to come up with a conviction. Even though they feel, and you can see the kind of evidences of like the sinister, malicious nature of this whole thing. It really is a kind of kangaroo court. They're pushing past, even some of their own policies and their own kind of ways of doing things in different moments and in different parts. They know that what they've done even to pay Judas to betray Jesus was not right. They'll refer to that later. Call it blood money. They understand that that was not a just act that they did. Even so, they're here and they're wanting to do it by the book, at least for a couple of reasons. One, self-righteousness is delusional. We tend to think ourselves as like put together people and we kind of welcome into our own self-conception the parts of us that we think are shiny and good and worthy of like people seeing and appreciating. We take these other parts of us and we tuck them away. We try not to think about them in our own consciousness and awareness. We definitely don't want anybody else to see that part of us. And that's what tends to happen as human beings. We tend to like have a very selective kind of understanding of what we begin to think about ourselves. And we begin to think that, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm better than that person or better than that person or I've got this together and that together. And for these leaders, they're again trying to go in some ways by the book because of their own commitment to some standard of righteousness. But also, and probably more squarely, they need a, they need a crime and witnesses that will stand up to the test of the Jewish people. So something that we would say under Hebrew law This would truly be a crime worthy of death. And there were crimes with which in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Law that were punishable by death. So they're looking for something there, but they don't, under the Roman Empire, they don't have the authority to sentence anybody to death and to execute anybody. So it also needs to be a crime that would stand up against and kind of make its way to the Roman governor, that the Roman governor would say, I agree, that's worthy of death. And so they're hunting for something. They want to end him. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want to push him out. He's disrupted their system. He's disrupted the religious establishment. He's disrupted the temple. He's disrupted the value system that they had in place and they are very protective of. And they, want to, and they want to end him. And so they're drumming up, trying to find some reason to put him to death. And so it says this, they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So imagine the scene, they're like what could we do? Maybe we could get him for like false prophecy. Are there any things he prophesied about that didn't happen yet? Can we prove that? Can we test that? Or maybe we could get him for like one of the things he said. He said a lot of crazy stuff. He, had, he said some I am statements. Was that clear? Was that unclear? Would it, would it hold ground? Would a Roman governor care about that? They're processing. Finally, two witnesses come forward with this claim. And they say this. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now we're getting somewhere. In their minds, we're getting somewhere. This claim to destroy the temple would have been seen as a number of things. It would have been seen as some sort of blasphemy of, kind, of some kind, treason, especially against their nationalistic tendencies. And it was warranted in some ways because people had experienced him coming and throwing over the tables and driving out the money changers. And so they saying, we could get him on this. We could condemn him for this. The question we have to ask is, did he actually say, I will destroy the temple and in three days. I will raise it up. Rebuild it in three days. And the answer is not exactly. Uh, Not exactly. In chapter 24, he did predict that the temple would be destroyed. It would be destroyed also as an act of judgment from God against the corrupt system that was enacted and established in Jerusalem in the temple. So he predicted that it would be destroyed, and he also said that he would, if you if you destroy this temple, he said, I can rebuild it in three days. And John says he's referring to his own life, his own body, that if you destroy him as the embodiment of God's presence, really what the temple was ultimately about is God's presence with his people. Jesus saying, that was all about me. Destroy me, and in three days, I will rise again. Did he say, if you destroy this or I will destroy this and rebuild it. Not exactly. But the high priest finds something he can work with. And so he starts kind of poking and prodding to kind of provoke something more because that still wouldn't stand up against the Roman governor. It wouldn't be something that the Roman governor would say, yes, I agree, we should execute him for that. So it says this. It says, and the high priest stood up and he said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? It says, but Jesus remained silent. His silence will be a theme. He will speak in a couple of profound moments. What he says in those moments is significant. But his silence is also significant. His silence is also significant. He could have clarified. He could have redirected. He could have explained and said, no, you misunderstood me. He could have done something to get himself out of this jam. But clearly, that's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to get himself out of this and he remains silent, reminding any kind of person familiar with the Old Testament prophetic books of passages like Isaiah 53 verse 7, where it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led, bef- uh, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's showing himself to be the willing, suffering servant who's come to be pierced for our transgressions, who's coming to be bruised for our iniquities, who's coming to take on a chastisement upon himself that would bring us peace, who's coming to experience a wounding through which we could find healing. He's showing himself to be that servant, the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah. So he's silent in this moment and it reminds the reader of that reality. And it says, then the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. You're like, adjure is a weird word. It was also a weird Greek word. It was a really kind of Powerful, strong, kind of like, tell me now. It's like, uh, almost like curse you if you don't tell me kind of thing. Like curses on you. Tell me the truth. Are you the Christ? He says, I adjure you by the living God. Again, profound irony. There's so much in these passages that we won't get into all the details, but the profound irony to adjure the living God by the living God. Like Jesus is the living God. And he's saying, by the living God, tell me. Tell me. Tell us If you are the Christ, that is the anointed one, the king we've been waiting for, the son of God. Are you the Christ? Now Jesus speaks and it's the longest thing he will say for the rest of his life before the crucifixion. And it's a profound statement because the whole gospel has been working towards this kind of clear statement that Jesus makes before his accusers, before those who are seeking to put him to death. He says this, Jesus said to them, you have said so. Like that's what... That's what you're, you're saying. And it's a way of saying, I, I affirm what you're saying in part. And essentially saying, yes, that's me, but it's not what you think it is. Like, who I am as the Christ is not what you expect the Christ to be. You've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says so you're you're saying it are you the Christ are you the son of god yes let me tell you the way i would say it from now on from this point forward you will see the son of man as soon as he says son of man it brings all these images we've talked about it a lot especially from daniel chapter 7 this image of of this one like the son of a man son of man this kind of this image of this person who's human but also has some divine authority and power that is Inside the heavenly realm brought before the throne of God and has given dominion, given authority, given power to establish a kingdom that will never fail. All of the kind of audience, all of the Sanhedrin would have known exactly what he was saying when he says, from now on, you will see the son of man. You'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's saying, I am the Christ I am the king, I am the one who is given power, and he invokes on him one of the most powerful and profound messianic prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures, and steps right into what they're looking for. Because if he's not this, then he's a blasphemer. If he is this, then the world is about to be different. But they've predetermined that he's not. They've predetermined that he's not. So as soon as he says this and makes this claim, it's done. They have what they need, not just for their own conviction, but for a conviction before the Roman governor. Because by claiming to be a Christ, you're claiming to be a new king that's coming to establish a new kingdom, a kind of kingdom that could drive out the Romans. And now he's an insurrectionist, and Rome can crucify insurrectionists. So that's what's happening in the scene. So Jesus steps into it, not with this anxious presence, not defending himself, not arguing with them, but with honesty, with differentiation, with integrity. He says the truth about who he is. He doesn't shy away from it, even though it will and does ultimately cost him his life. So verse 65 says this, Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. It's like, nay, hey, we're all witnesses now. If 71 people make up the Sanhedrin council, we need a third of them to kind of constitute a quorum. So they have at least that many witnesses that just heard him say, basically, I'm a new king. And you're going to see me reign with authority and with power. He says, You've heard his blasphemy. So, what's your judgment? He asks the council, What's the judgment? What do we say? And everybody says, He deserves death. And then they spit on his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? For all of the tension we've seen kind of up to this point, this is the first time it gets to this kind of physicality, and the physicality from this point escalates and escalates and escalates to the point of Jesus being naked, bleeding, kind of skin ripped apart as he suffocates on a Roman cross. It begins to, in kind of, the, the pain that Jesus stands in on our behalf in this place is stunning. 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 The first thing I want us to see in this passage though is is ourselves in the passage and see a reflection of ourselves. One of the ways we could say it, and here's how I've been thinking, there's a lot going on, but we turn away from Jesus in pride and self-righteousness. These leaders have decided that they don't need Jesus. Their kingdom is established on their own righteousness, their own interpretation, their own knowledge, their own moral superiority, and Jesus has been confronting that and poking at that and showing them that they actually need forgiveness, they need a healed heart, but they've decided they don't need that. They don't need a healed heart. They're fine without Jesus, and they've built up a religious system where they can feel their own intellectual and moral superiority over others, and they can establish a a sense of self, a sense of identity, uh, in that kind of sense of pride and self-righteousness that even if they're dead on the inside even if they have no relational knowledge of God they're committed to this so much so that they're willing to unjustly put an innocent man to death and as stark as it might be as corrupt as this might seem to us this is true in all of us especially in a church-like setting we really tend to take religion or anything we can, but if you're a part of kind of the Christian movement or any religious movement, the human heart is bent towards taking anything and using it as a way to exalt ourselves above people. And perhaps nothing in history has been used in such damaging ways as religion to elevate a person over top of other people. That to use religious Behavior moral behavior or intellectual knowledge or theological positions to feel better than less in need of mercy or grace is inherently rebellious and sinful in fact it's one of the things that Jesus the prophets the New Testament writers confront most severely with most profound and powerful and stark and pointed language is religious leaders who's, who's, who tend to think because of their behavior because of their knowledge their above others and less in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. So Jesus will call people like a whitewashed tomb saying, Hey, you are clean on the outside on the inside. You're dead. And I wonder if we might see some of ourselves in that mirror. I wonder if we might see some of ourselves where we see, man, I can do Bible reading. I can go to small group. I can go to church. I can think the right way and say the right things and have the right doctrinal statements. But inside there's anger, malice, malice, resentment, self-righteousness, bitterness, arrogance, no genuine relationship with God, just an external facade of righteousness that people, wow, wow. And I say it in 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 a role as a pastor where it's like, it is an occupational hazard, how easy it is to get up week after week after week and say things. What's going on in my heart? Where am I in my real life? What are my fears? What are my sins? What are the things I turn away from? What's my relationship with him like? I wonder if we could see in ourselves a picture of pride and self-righteousness as a way that we all tend to turn away from God. And while these leaders are exalting their own power and protecting their own righteousness and their own system, the religious system, at the expense of others, Jesus is there with all authority and power offering his life in vulnerability. You want to know what true transformation, true power, true strength looks like? It looks like Jesus, who could have freed himself, but instead offers himself with vulnerability, with love, with surrender. When we say, I need to build myself up and protect myself and make sure I can protect my little kingdom and protect the way people think about me and view me, here's Jesus being misunderstood, misrepresented, falsely condemned, falsely accused. And he does it with humility and vulnerable love. That's power. That's beauty. That's love on beautiful display in Jesus. That in this picture, we see a profound image of Jesus who has all the power and authority establishing his kingdom, not by elevating himself above others, but offering himself with vulnerability and love. This is the first scene we see in this passage. Scene number two, Peter in the courtyard. Pick up with me, verse Sixty-nine, twenty-six, sixty-nine. says now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said you were also with Jesus the Galilean But he denied it before them all saying. I don't know. I don't know what you mean And when he went out To the entrance another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders This man was with Jesus of Nazareth and again. He denied it this time with an oath I don't know the man And after a little while, the bystanders, all the bystanders came up and they said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Like we we hear the Galilean in your voice. We know that you're with them. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed as Jesus had predicted earlier that same evening. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It's a profound thing that Matthew's doing in this passage. He's actually contrasting the story of Peter with the story of Jesus in really clear and really poetic and artistic ways. Jesus has these kind of three movements of escalation in his trial. First people trying to kind of drum up an ap- accusation. Then two witnesses coming before him and kind of saying, yeah, he, he said he was going to destroy the temple. And then finally the high priest kind of bringing out of him this claim of his messianic authority. And then they condemn him to death. This kind of escalating trial. Peter also is having an escalating trial right on the other side of the wall. So it's like a camera is in with Jesus, watching him suffer as a silent servant with honesty, with integrity, with truth, but also with vulnerability and with love. And then the camera pans out to get a picture of his follower his leader among his followers, and say, what's happening in in the heart of Peter? And Peter is pushing away after moment, after moment, after moment. It's the kind of confrontations are escalating from a single servant girl to the servant girl with the bystanders, now the whole bystanders. And he, his denial of Jesus escalates as well. He says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know the man. This time he gives an oath, which Jesus had already explicitly told him not to swear by an oath. Just tell the truth. You don't need to promise and swear by anything. But Jesus Uh, Peter swears by an oath and then finally he invokes a curse. There's some debate about if it's a curse on him uh, based on the text. Is it a curse on himself or a curse on Jesus? And it's hard to tell. The bottom line is he's escalating in his rebellion and the geographical move from Peter in the courtyard to beside the gate to outside of the gate is intended by Matthew to give us a picture of another kind of wandering. Like this is in us. This is in us. in a way we could say is that we turn away from Jesus for fear and self-preservation. Peter has been gung-ho for Jesus, like over the top, over and over and over and over, but he had a conception of what following Jesus would be. Be hanging on, riding on the coattails of Jesus as Jesus establishes a kingdom. As much as Jesus has been telling him, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be handed over, I'm gonna be convicted, I'm gonna die, and on the third day I'm gonna rise, Peter's already been like, nope, not happening, and Jesus like, get behind me, Satan. And then Peter kind of makes some amends, is back, and he's like, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He's like, no way, not going to happen. He's like, yeah, it's going to happen tonight. Peter's like, no way, everybody else will run away from you. And and it's true. Nobody else is here in the courtyard. It's Peter in the courtyard. Peter's there, and he's looking on to see what happens. And maybe it's as he sees Jesus not fighting against these indictments and these accusations, but embracing them with humility and with love that it becomes clear to Peter, maybe it's becoming clear to Peter, Jesus is going to die. And do I want to be attached to him? Do I want to follow that? What would that mean for me? What would following Jesus mean for me? If Jesus led the way towards his own self-giving act, an act of sacrificial death, what would that mean for me? Am I ready to do that? Or am I going to, on my own terms, protect myself? And so, Jesus, so Peter, in these crowds of people, where following Jesus wouldn't be seen as like, a well done, Peter, you're following our hero. It's saying, you're associated with that guy that's about to get crucified, And Peter decides to push away, little by little by little. And I think it's another profound thing for us. In a culture where following Jesus with faithfulness is is hard. It's hard. It's always hard. I think Jesus was honest. If you're going to genuinely follow him in any culture, and follow his way of life, and push against the cultural idols in your own heart, and your own life, and pursue holiness, it will always be met with opposition and tension. But in our cultural moment, that's even more the case. That your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe your family members are less like, oh, wow, you're a follower of Jesus that loves the Bible? No. We're not a fan of that anymore. That actually following Jesus with faithfulness, following Jesus with integrity, with honesty, creates tension. Actually following not just like what you believe about him or about his word, but actually doing what he says to do, the way you love, the way you serve, being honest about your brokenness, being kind and forgiving, asking people forgiveness. Like if you're living a life where you're going to hold on to your own way of life and not be honest, and you say, well, that's scary. If I'm honest to my spouse about what I did, I'll be rejected. If I'm honest to my coworkers about what I believe, I'll be rejected. If I'm honest to my parents about what's going on in my life, I'll be rejected. If I'm honest about the things I'm experiencing, I'll be rejected. If I'm honest and truthful, I'm going to follow Jesus with faithfulness. I'm afraid I'll be rejected. And so we begin to push away for all kinds of reasons to protect ourselves That's not how Jesus lived. He willingly endured suffering. He walked into suffering willingly and profoundly to rescue people, including people like Peter. He knew the weakness of Peter, and he knows our weakness. He knows our weakness, and he suffers willingly in our place. Remember, he told Peter what would happen. He said, this is going to happen. But you'll see every New Testament author that records this story is aware that Peter became a leader in the church, a leader in the Jesus movement. They knew that Peter had experienced forgiveness and redemption and healing. And instead of tucking away Peter's sin as if we need to pretend our Christian leaders are heroes, they say, let's put that on display to show that the hero is Jesus The hero is Jesus. The hero is the mercy of God. The hero is the grace and kindness that's available in Jesus. That's what we celebrate. And Peter says, highlight my brokenness, like the Apostle Paul would call himself the chief of sinners. Our goal as a community is not to protect our kind of like sense of righteousness or protect that we've got it together, but to be honest about where we're wandering, where our heart's fading. And to know that the current of our flesh and the current of our culture and the active spiritual opposition of spiritual force of darkness will pull you away from Jesus. So I wanna kind of offer this question to you. And I think it's a significant question that if you'd be willing to think about it, it might, it might be a significant moment. And it's take a look at your trajectory of life and are you headed towards Jesus or drifting away from him? Just like look at your real life, your heart. At a heart level, at an affection level, at a desire level, are you pursuing Jesus, moving towards him? Or if you're honest, do you find yourself drifting away? And I think the answer for a lot of us would often be, honestly, I'm drifting away. It's not like a a binary thing, like you're either this or you're this. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm drifting away. And learning how to be honest about that learning how to be open about that, learning how to be truthful about that and say, I need Jesus. I'm gonna need what he's doing here as he lays down his life and suffering love. I need that because I'm not this resilient disciple. I'm not like, I'll never fall away from you. Man, my heart is so insecure. I deal with so many different things in my life, the things that draw my attention away from Jesus. Do you know how easy it is for me personally to like operate as a dad, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor with a heart that's super distant? from Jesus. Sometimes I look up, I'm like, man, for like the past couple of months, I feel like really distant and I can only feel it in my anxieties and my fears and my compulsions and my sin patterns. I can see these evidences of it. And it's almost always rooted in I've drifted away from intimacy with Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to kind of work yourself back into that relationship. He's offered himself for it, which brings us into this next scene scene number three. First one of chapter 27 gives this kind of transition statement, and it's Matthew's way of saying, hey, I want you to pay attention to all these things. I want you to feel it. It's like a a movie is rolling out, and we're looking through these different scenes. So there's the Sanhedrin was happening, and now we're outside in the courtyard, and now it's going to kind of transition temporarily. Look at verse one. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away to be del- and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So that's happening. They're marching Jesus. Maybe he's bound with his hands. Likely, often they would have blindfolds, even while they said, prophesy, who's it that hits you? It's possible he had something over his face. So maybe he's blindfolded, he's being marched, and it seems like Judas sees what's happening. Judas, who had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, sees what's going on. It brings us to this third, and I think a really um Profound scene, Judas and the chief priests. Look at Matthew 27, verse 3. It says, when when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. So he sees Jesus. He's coming out of Caiaphas' house. He's being escorted to the house, to the residence of Pilate, the governor. He's bound. It becomes clear that Jesus has been condemned, that he's likely about to die. And something happens. And I think as, as readers, we often move over this part of the story. We want to think of Judas as the betrayer. But look at what it says about Judas. It's a profound statement. Then when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas sees Jesus, a man that he knows isn't worthy of execution. He sees what's happening, and something happens, at least at a cognitive level, And maybe even something in his heart, what I did was wrong. I have sinned. This is an innocent man. This is not supposed to happen. And he comes back to the chief priests and the elders and says, take back the money. Take back the money. Can I undo what I've done? Can I reverse this mistake? Can I kind of atone for and and justify myself because I've done this wrong thing? And he tries to give it back. And they say to him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Like, listen, man, like you brought us Jesus. Thank you very much. Your internal battle is not our deal. Like deal with it on your own. And so Judas in this really devastating scene that just put in this single verse and throwing down the piece of silver into the temple, he chucks the silver on the ground. He departed and he went and he hanged himself. Again, a devastating, devastating scene. Hanged himself. He pushes away, instead of coming to Jesus with this, he pushes away in shame, self destructive, self loathing shame, and he ends his own life. Verse 6 The chief priests taking the sil- pieces of silver said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money, which is an, is an incredibly ironic statement. They're naming it blood money, like we paid this guy money to deliver over Jesus. We know that that was wrong. But let's not keep doing wrong. Let's go ahead and not use that money to fund the temple. We've got to find something else to do with it. So they're still delusionally committed to some kind of like pretense of righteousness, even while their hearts are still clearly, clearly hard and divided against Jesus. And so they take counsel together and they bought with them a, a potter's field, a burial place for strangers. It says, therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I'm gonna just hone in for a second on what's happening with these um, religious leaders and we're gonna back back up to Judas. Um, There's so much happening here. in terms of Old Testament prophecies that have been brought together, kind of bringing themselves together. Fundamentally, fundamentally what's happening uh, is they are so determined to not use this kind of unjustly got gain to fund the temple that they go out and buy a burial place where people that are traveling through Jerusalem, if someone dies in their family, they could they could bury them there in Jerusalem rather than having to take a corpse back on the journey back home. And so that's their buying a field. Uh, It has a lot of images about Idolatry that happened and judgment that happened on the people of Israel throughout throughout the ages. Most fundamentally, again, this is about Jesus and Matthew saying what's happening here is still like inside the the will of God. What's happening here as this broken system works towards the death of Jesus is planned by God to bring about deliverance to humanity, forgiveness for the sins of the world. This is unfolding according to to the plan of God and so look with me back at the situation with Judas and I want us to see this third kind of like profile of rebellion and it's this we turn away from Jesus in shame and self-justification this little line that he changed his mind has stuck with me in a significant way uh, as I was doing work on this passage you'll see uh, the comparison of Judas right up next to Peter both sinned Dramatically. Both denied and rejected Jesus in dramatic fashion. Peter will in time be restored. And Judas will end up kind of continuing on a plight towards self-destruction. And the fact that it says it changed his mind kind of gives us insight into how forgiveness and transformation really can truly happen. The word that Matthew uses for change his mind isn't the traditional word that would be used, the standard word that he and other New Testament authors would use for repentance. It's not like he changed his mind and turned back to Jesus. It, it kind of connotes this idea of remorse and regret, but not repentance. Not repentance. He recognizes that what he did was wrong. He recognizes it even as sin. Even as sin. But in that place of shame, what he seeks to do is not to go before God and say, I've sinned, I need mercy, I need forgiveness. He doesn't run up to Jesus and say, I'm so sorry I did this to you. I wonder what would have happened if he would have. What he does is he tries to atone for himself. He tries to like undo his sin in his own power and his own strength. If I can just give the money back, if I can just go back and I can make it right and we can get this out and Jesus can be set free The consequences of his sin were real, and by facing those consequences, it was too much for him. Like a world with him, with this kind of life, was a world that was too much for Judas, and like so many people that struggle, so many of us, so many of us that struggle with shame, that feel the brokenness in our own heart, that see the junk that nobody else sees, that sees the fears, the insecurities, the sin, sees the rebellion, sees the patterns, sees the disintegration of who I pretend to be on the outside and what's going on inside of me, that shame we feel that if anybody saw the, the real me, I would never be loved. I would never be accepted. I would never be forgiven. And so we stay in isolation. We keep it in the dark. And in the dark, it destroys us. Sometimes it, it leads people to really devastating actions. It always leads to destruction. When you walk with the, with the stuff inside of you and say, instead of being honest about this, to God and bringing it to him and experiencing his cleansing power, his redeeming love, his incredible mercy and grace, I'm gonna hold on to it and I'm either gonna try to like fix it and pretend and reestablish a kind of life but I'm dealing with this kind of like shame that just keeps lurking and keeps peeking its head. In fact, so many of the kind of sin struggles we have as we struggle with the same kinds of sin patterns again and again and again are are connected to outworkings and compulsions that flow from shame that we just haven't brought to Jesus for healing. Still legitimate behavioral sin, but if we just try to like nip the head off the dandelion over and over and over again and don't deal with some of the root stuff at the, at the heart of all of it, we're going to find ourselves feeling more and more in despair. Like why do I keep struggling with the same thing? Is it possible that there's stuff going on inside of you? Shame that you've carried because of things you've done, maybe even things that have happened to you that need to be brought before Jesus, that need to be brought into light to turn to him, not just to say what I did was wrong or what happened was wrong, but I'm coming to Jesus with this and saying, will you bring forgiveness? Will you bring healing? Will you bring cleansing? And he is quick to forgive. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May God help us to be a people that turn to him with faith, with honesty, with vulnerability, and that we learn how to do it to each other. That Jesus, in this moment, while Judas is laying down and sacrificing his life because of his own sin, Jesus is marching to the cross so that there's an avenue and an an ability for people like Judas to experience forgiveness, which is what Peter will fundamentally experience. He'll he'll experience cleansing, redemption, purpose, meaning, and life as he comes to Jesus, even with the reality of his sin and experiences the transformative power of of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. And so the fourth vignette, the fourth scene we see, and I know this a lot, is this. Look at verse 11. It's Jesus before Pilate. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, again, you've said so. so like, that's your words, but kind of, um, kind of. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things there, they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus who's called the Christ. And so now Jesus is going to be coming before Pilate, who's the governor, the Roman governor over Judea, who has the right to condemn him and convict him to death, who has the right to sentence him to execution by crucifixion. And Jesus is again silent before before, uh, the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate. And so as Jesus goes before him, Jesus is standing before him, and, and Pontius Pilate seats sits on the Bema seat, the judgment seat, and it's this really, again, profound image of the true judge of the world, the, the true king of glory, is on the judgment seat before this human judge. And the human judge represents the Roman Empire, represents the Roman Empire in this place. And it's a profound thing that the role of a Roman governor was, was basically two things. One, collect taxes, like secure the wealth and increasing wealth for the Roman Empire. And two, maintain peace, Pax Romana. Remember your history classes. Like keep the peace. And so anytime something was like threatening some sort of up, uprising or riot or revolt, this is like a significant moment. Like we need to put this down because if there's disruption, word's going to get back to Tiberius. When word gets back to him, I'm going to get t- cast out of here and I'll kind of get like pushed out of my position. And so it is on Pontius Pilate to find a way through this that maintains peace so that the kingdom of Rome can be protected and established and prosper. And the question we have to ask is, is there room for King Jesus in the kingdom of Rome? And Pontius Pilate's determination is, no, there's not. There's not because of the disruptive power of Jesus. So here's what happens. says this. says, who do you want me to release you? He says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Like he knew he was innocent. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's the Bema seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So God gave this Roman, this Gentile woman a dream to actually warn her husband not to execute this man. But again, Pilate pushes past showing his own culp- culpability and complicity in this. It so says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children, like we take responsibility This is on all of us. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, and that word, that little word, is a word that communicates so much pain. So much pain, like flaying someone's skin off of their body kind of pain. Scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Another profound scene. Another profound scene where Jesus is offering his life willingly. He stands before Pilate. Pilate tries to recuse himself, abdicating his own responsibility, but ultimately is complicit. The crowd's complicit. The leaders are complicit. What's profound to me about this scene, there's so many things, but is this exchange between Barabbas and Jesus that this criminal who Mark says was being condemned because he was an insurrectionist against Rome. He really was exalting himself against the Roman Empire is gonna be released, and Jesus, who is offering himself in humility, and sacrifice, and in innocence, was going to die. And it's this image of what what will continue to unfold in the next chapters of this substitution, that Jesus is taking the guilt of an insurrectionist. He's taking a death that is deserved by rebels of the Roman Empire, and he's experiencing at the hands of Rome being executed as a rebel, while this man Barabbas, who actually was a rebel, is being set free. Do you know what the name Barabbas means in Aramaic? Son of the Father. Fascinating. Fascinating that Barabbas, this guilty rebel, goes free. A son of the Father, a child of God. And Jesus, the innocent one, lays down his life. What was happening before the Roman government is also representative in kind of a picture of what was actually happening at a cosmic level. Jesus laying down his life, the one true son of God, laying down his life to pay the penalty for our sin, our rebellion, our rejection. That just like this Pontius Pilate, the Romans, and others, they wanted to turn away from Jesus in this place to to build their own kingdom. They wanted to turn away from Jesus to to build and establish their own self-made kingdom. I want to build my own Roman empire. I want to build my own religious system. I want to build my own family. I want to build my own career. I want to build my own recreation. I want to build my own identity apart from you. And I want to build my own life apart from a king with no authority outside of me. I am my own king. We are in charge. We don't need a king. And if there's a king that comes into my life, Claiming authority as my creator, as my king, I cast him out. And the crowds yell out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's there, crucify him. The religious leaders are there, crucify him. Peter's gone, disciples are scattered. And there we are with them, kicking Jesus out of the realm of our life, saying, I got this by myself. And there Jesus is offering his life as a substitute to bring forgiveness, cleansing, healing, atonement, reconciliation, grace, and love. And the invitation for all of us is to turn to him, to turn to him, not denying the reality of our sin, but owning it over and over again as we see it more and more clearly through his love and the power of the spirit to bring it to him for forgiveness, cleansing. And when we turn to him in faith, like Peter would, we find freedom and joy and life and transformation and hope, and purpose. This is who we're called to be. This is what Christianity is all about, most fundamentally. Jesus laying down his life as an offering, paying the penalty for human sin, offering forgiveness, love, reconciliation, and life in him. May we follow him and worship him together. Let's pray. Jesus, we come now, and we ask your grace and your mercy to help us. We need you, even now, to not just move past these things, but to see in this, our own life, our own sin, but also to see your mercy, your love, and your grace. Would you help us, King Jesus, to be a community that worships you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name, amen. I want to go ahead and invite the communion servers to make their way up. And I want to end uh, this this morning just reading from Isaiah chapter 53 as we prepare for communion. A communion is a time where we turn to Jesus, not pretending like we've got it together, but precisely because we don't. I just want to encourage you to get really honest today and not just kind of go through the rites and go through the rituals, but get honest and say, I see it. I see the brokenness of my own heart. I see the sin. I see the self-righteousness. I see the envy. I see the fear. I see the self-preservation. I see my drifting heart. I see my shame. And instead of running away from him, let even this time of communion be a turning to him yet again to find love and healing and forgiveness and grace. This is for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53, which we referred to earlier. We see a beautiful, again, a beautiful picture of God's love for us in Christ. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and it's with his stripes that we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, just like the Jewish leaders, just like Peter, just like Judas, just like Pilate, we've all gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.